1: From the milton met studio and i use radio tv building this is noon edition on wfiu i'm bob zaltzberg from wfiu wtiu news my co-host is sarah whitmeyer the news director of wfiu the news bureau chief wfiu and wtiu is her actual title this week we're talking about modern romance and new trends and committed relationships we have three guests it's valentine's day so we're doing this kind of show We have three guests, two in the studio. Steve Sanders is a professor of law at the Maurer School of Law in Bloomington. He's also affiliated faculty in the Department of Gender Studies at the Kinsey Institute. We have Travis Lawson, a counselor in Bloomington who does couples counseling as well as other forms of counseling. And joining us by phone is Dr. Helen Fisher, a senior research fellow with the Kinsey Institute. She's calling us from her office in New York. If you have questions or comments, please give us a call at 812 855 0811 in Bloomington or toll free at 1 877 285 9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at Indiana Public Media.org. And I'm going to start with um, Travis and I'm going to start with um, Dr. Fisher and just say what is the uh, state of romance and marriage in the U.S. today? Travis?
2: Um, You know, it's like it's so interesting looking at the and Dr. Fisher can speak to this too. looking at the trends of uh, marriage within the U.S. You know, as you mentioned earlier, one of the things that we're seeing is people are getting married um, much later than what they were uh, before. And there are kind of a myriad of reasons that people are doing that from a developmental perspective. You know, they're sort of delaying this entrance. Um, into uh, what we traditionally had considered like adult roles before and so you know there are financial implications behind that um, people pursuing uh, more education so there's are just a, a bunch of reasons why people are doing that and that is particularly interesting among uh, LGBT people which I know we're going to get into a little bit later but yeah it's a really interesting trend that we're seeing all right Dr. Fisher
3: well, what's, I, I will go on with Travis. That's, very, that's exactly right. And it's around the world. It's not just in the United States. Uh, it's almost 10 years later. I mean, a woman used to marry at age 20, and now she's married at almost age 28. And I've looked in 80 cultures through the demographic yearbooks of the United Nations. And the later you marry, the more likely you are to remain married. So we may be heading towards some relative family uh, uh, stability. And I think there's many reasons. I mean, I'm the um, chief science advisor to Match.com, so I collect a lot of data for them. I don't collect the data on their Match members. I collect it in national uh, representative samples based on the U.S. Census. So it's real science. And just as Travis said, there's many, many reasons. But among them, uh, one-third of people in their 20s are still living at home. And it's not because they're lazy. It's because they're saving money. One-third of singles today want to be financially stable before they wed And get this, 40% of singles today want self-acceptance before they wed. So they're working on themselves. They're cautious. This is a cautious generation. Today, millennials are cautious. In fact, I'm extremely uh, impressed with them.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, Steve, I know you've done a lot of work on... on LGBT marriage. It's Mm -hmm. five years since the Supreme Supreme Court ruling, roughly
4: five years. Yeah, I mean, gay marriage has actually been legal in in at least a few places in this country since 2004. Massachusetts became the first state. Iowa followed um, a a few years later and then uh, in the, uh, you sort of had a a cascade of states increasingly legalizing marriage often by court order, culminating in the Supreme Court decision in 2015 that this is something that states cannot deny people. Mm So we've been living with the reality of same-sex marriage, um, you know, one consequence of marriage is that people have kids and, and reproduce, and that's provided a, a host of interesting legal questions. Um, but, but another issue that I think is is floating above the things that uh, Travis and Helen have already talked about, and that is um, the government privileging of marriage. So if we have a rise of people living together without marriage, if we have more people living in single households, as we know we do... That begins to raise some questions about whether all of the advantages and legal benefits and expectations that come with marriage um, you know, should be extended to other kinds of relationships, other forms of caregiving. Uh, is this something that uh, – are we privileging something that is no longer necessarily in sync with what people need in the real world? Well, and
1: you're – I mean, I think a lot of workplaces deal with this, right, with benefits that they're offering. Sure. I
4: I mean, yeah, sure. It's very common, of course, that, uh, you know, in order to qualify for uh, subsidized health insurance, you you can put your spouse, your legal spouse, on a subsidized health insurance policy. I, I think if you're an IU employee, your spouse gets to use, you know, the campus gym and other sorts of privileges. So both in the private sector but as well as law, law privileges marriage in all sorts of ways. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of the uh, you know world's greatest preferred customer card. If if you are married, in lots of ways, now it also it also carries, to be sure, responsibilities and obligations. But it it is in many ways legally, financially, um, a, a form of privileged relationship. That uh, but we're talking about lots of different kinds of loving relationships, either romantic relationships or even caregiving to a parent, mm-hmm. and and is our. Is our world keeping up with those needs Travis
2: and I think one thing that we to go off that I think one thing that we see when you look at the sort of data why people choose to get married, you know, generally it's um, You know people choose to get married because they're in love and that kind of trend holds true for LGBT people and um, Heterosexual people, but where where the data gets really interesting with these sort of motivations, why people choose to do what they do, you know, love, of course, companionship, all these things where you see something very interesting happen um, uh, statistically is that LGBT people more so than heterosexual people report that they um, are getting married for like more utilitarian reasons, you know, now that they can, you know, they report that they're getting married for um, sort of the legal protections that you get that come along with uh, having a spouse and uh, the financial stability. So you know you see these more uh, kind of utilitarian reasons that people are also choosing to do that now because they can, mm-hmm. right?
4: Which again goes back to the issue of all the government provided and private sector provided sure. benefits, rights, subsidies, privileges that go with marriage.
5: Is that true just w- with older couples too? Do they get married for the same sort of reasons?
2: Well, I think one thing that's really interesting about that in terms of uh, sex or like kind of gender is um, when you look at older Americans in particular, um, you know, and this goes back to that sort of wage disparity between women and men. So that sort of underpins this whole kind of thing. I mean, one of the things that you see is that um, uh, comparatively. same-sex couples, uh, uh, women who are in same-sex relationships compared to men who are in same-sex relationships and heterosexual counterparts tend to live in poverty more than the other two populations. And this is also true of women, uh, who, are, uh, women who are older. Right, in part, be, um, that sort of part because of that kind of partnership, but also in part because as as men and women age, there tend to, there tends to be a lot more uh, older women than there are older men, and so that makes that uh, pairing up more difficult. Right.
5: I'm curious, Dr. Fisher, in your research, um, if we're talking about people waiting till they're more financially secure to get married, are we yeah. really changing this idea of marriage and that? You, you're creating almost like the haves and the have nots in marriage um, because do you have the wealth to get married at a younger age, is that?
3: Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, it's it's people who are college educated are more likely to get married and and, and less likely to divorce. And I can really see why, because the thing is if you're going to divorce and you don't have very much money, you might be paying alimony to somebody who you were only married to for a year or a year and a half. And you've got, you know, I mean, I I am fascinated with what I think it was Steve said about the fact that we're going to need some changing uh, legal systems to, to for all of this. I mean, there's so So many different kinds of relationships, as I think that he said. I mean, there's one thing that I'm interested in called L.A.T., living apart together. And these are two people who love each other, are faithful to each other, but keep separate homes and really meet almost by appointment. And uh, I do think that we're also going to need more um, uh, different ways to divorce. I I know that in France now they've got something called PACS, P-A-C-S, PACS. And you can divorce by just really handing in a sheet of paper, um, which would, you know, bypass the incredible uh, legal issues of of divorce that we have today. And I would think that if we begin to have more realistic uh, uh, marriage and divorce laws, just as has been suggested here, that we will see... Um, more people marrying. I know that um, uh, the vast majority of people of reproductive age in America today do want to marry. And all of my data on this 45,000 Americans uh, shows that after your reproductive years are over, you're less and less inclined to actually marry. But that doesn't mean you aren't still creating all kinds of partnerships, which I agree should be uh, uh, equally privileged.
1: If you have questions or comments about the uh, topics we're getting into today, which is uh, love, marriage, relationships, legal issues involving those things, we'll get into some technology issues involving those things, political issues involving those things, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions at news at org or on Twitter at Noon Edition.
5: We got a question from Emma who is wanting to know about moving in with a significant other. Um, she says, What advice do experts have for someone who's going to move in with their significant other for the first time? Is cohabitation before marriage really a predictor of divorce?
2: It, yeah, and, Travis? Uh, uh, yeah.
3: We'll
2: let, we'll let Travis start and then Dr. Dr and how uh, dr fisher you may know a little bit more about this than i do but generally you know cohabitation has been a predictor of divorce and so when you look at sort of all these different populations people who cohabitate um people who are are married people who are married with kids kind of all of these things the, the group that really reports being the most satisfied um, in their in in their relationship are people who are who are married with no children um, yeah. and so it, you know it's really interesting um, it, but again going along with Dr. Fisher and I know that she this is a, a topic that she's going to discuss you know kind of the longer you date somebody you know the more that's correlated to the uh, a likelihood that you'll stay together so you know it's very complex mm-hmm.
5: why, well, why would that be yeah that that co- cohabitation could lead to divorce
3: well, I actually don't um, – the data that I've said is that when you look at all of the other things, it's actually not the predictor of divorce. What is the predictor of divorce is more the fact that um, you chose to do this, <laughs> that you're the kind of personality type who's either more cautious or, or more careful or, or, <clears throat> or maybe even more flamboyant. I mean, you know, uh, 25 years ago – Uh, it was a a horrifying thing for people to live together before they wed. And now it's actually routine. And so I'm not convinced that it's actually the fact that they are living together that's creating the divorce. It may be personality styles that led them to this lifestyle that is actually what's leading them to divorce um, rather than the actual fact that they're living together. But anyway, what we're really seeing today is a different courtship pattern. What we're seeing is... um, um, people start out as just friends Oh, we're just friends then they slowly move into friends with benefits you learn a lot between the sheets about somebody not just whether they're good in bed but whether they can listen whether they are kind or whether they can be patient etc et then they slowly move into telling friends and family then they have the official first date not way in the beginning like in my day but then they have the official first date 34% of people who have their first date today have already had sex with the person they already know the person on a lot of levels. Then they're slowly moving into living together uh, before they went. They are cautious. And if I were... That girl, I would, it, personally, you know, I mean, I'm not in the should business what you ought to do with your life, but the bottom line is I, I think it can be really quite healthy to get to know somebody before you tie the knot because, boy, it's hard to get out of a, a bad marriage, and particularly after you've had children. And the more you get to know somebody, in my opinion, really, uh, the, more, the more you are uh, likely to uh, not make terrible mistakes in wedding.
5: She does ask for advice. From the expert, yeah. right. <laughs> it, it, well, in, in
4: the realm of the somewhat more practical, I, I don't know if the writer is, th- is talking about sort of short-term cohabitation as a as a sort of a test before getting married or long-term cohabitation. But one way the law has innovated is, you know, people don't have to be married in order to have agreements about once they do split up how their property is going to be divided or whether somebody is going to be obligated to continue to support the other person. Um, uh, you know, th- th- those things are. are, are Contemplated in marriage, and you can have a premarital agreement and so forth. But it's been uh, the law now for a long time in almost every state that that unmarried couples can also, either by oral or written contract, sort of come to agreements about: look, if we split up, uh, uh, here here's going to be what we owe to each other. Uh, now, for you know, younger people who may not have a lot of property or assets, that may be all sort of irrelevant. But uh, but but unmarried people can, in many ways. Um, you know, mimic the the, the the legal infrastructure around marriage, whether it's agreements about support, property division, powers of attorney about, you know, whether you're going to make medical decisions for the person, uh, inheritance rights, and so forth.
1: Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask, and I guess I'll ask Dr. Fisher first. I mean, the, the idea of technology has sort of changed the game. Um, with uh, you know online services like Match.com, I mean, how much has that changed the the idea of you know romance or of people getting to know one another? I mean, how much of an right. impact has that had?
3: Well, that's very good. I mean, um, I I really studied that. And by the way, you know, I put I and my colleagues have put over 100 people into a brain scanner and studied the brain circuitry of romantic love and also studied the brain circuitry of feelings of deep attachment, which are different brain systems, but often related. And you can't change those brain systems. They lie way in the base of the brain. You know, they're like fear and and anger. Actually, they're not even emotions. They're drives. In fact, the basic factory that that, um, uh, triggers feelings of romantic love lies right next to the factory that... Orchestrates thirst and hunger. Thirst and hunger keep you alive today. Romantic love drives you actually to seek out a partner uh, to win life's greatest prize, which is a mating partner. So the bottom line is that brain system is not going to change whether you swipe left or right on Tinder. But courtship is changing. That is what changed and courtship has been constantly changing throughout human evolution and even through uh, prehistory. But uh, it's changing dramatically today. I mean, um, uh, but you know. A lot of people don't understand these dating sites. These are not dating sites. They, they're not dating sites. They are introducing sites. You've got to get out and meet the person. The only real algorithm is your own brain. That's not going to change, whether you met somebody on a park bench, whether that you met them on, I don't know, uh, on an Internet site. But you've got it, it, It's still the responsibility of your own brain, which really hasn't changed. It's just this new way to do the same old thing, which is to meet people. Mm-hmm. But there's problems to it. I mean, we've got too many alternatives now. I mean, for millions of years you didn't have, you couldn't swipe left or right a thousand times. But we don't know how to use these services. As a matter of fact, the brain has a sort of a sweet spot of between five and nine choices. And after you've got onto your 10th choice, the brain gets swamped. It's called cognitive overload. So it's no, it's not a problem with the technology. We just, it's so new, we haven't learned how to use it.
1: Okay, I have to ask this question because that's what I'm paid to do, but can you explain these swiping left or right for those who might not oh,
3: understand? Oh, sorry. Um, so I've never done it. But when you go on Tinder, which I've never done, um, uh, you swipe uh, uh, uh I don't know. I think it's right if you um, want inter- to say, I'm interested, and you swipe left if you're just getting it off your thing and you don't wanna, want to want uh, to uh, meet or meet the person. So you, you'll see a pile of girls. They'll go into a bar. They don't even go into a bar to pick people up in the bar. They go in to meet each other and swipe left or right on Tinder. <laughs> gotcha. um, and they're looking at everybody's face in a very, very short profile and saying, all right, I'd like to meet you. I'll swipe right. I don't want to meet you. I'll swipe left.
5: So, okay. so what happens then, after you swipe? <laughs> I'm just... I,
3: oh, well, but, uh, well then it's I don't over. work with that site, but my oh. understanding is, and tell me if I'm wrong, yeah. somebody, but um, the, the real key, and it's a brilliant key, I think, the real key is that they the other person has to swipe right also. Oh. And if you both swipe right, then it's the beginning of the process of, of, of connecting. And... Um, uh, and, and, and that's how how it works. It, it's very interesting. I always thought it might be for older people, but uh, the young are really getting into it. I read an article, I don't know, last week, and it was about a lot of college students um, who don't feel like going out on Friday night and having 10 beers and having sex with somebody they don't even know. They would prefer to go onto an online site, actually, and um, meet, because you know a little bit more about them. At least they're on a site. At least they're interested in it. As a matter of fact, You know, I do these studies, as I say, with Match, and um, every single year for the last, I don't know, several years now, uh, more people have met their last first date. Online, not just necessarily match, but online than offline. And there's a new study out of Chicago University of Chicago, which was fascinating, which shows that if you meet somebody online as opposed to offline, um, uh, you're more likely and, and marry them. You're more likely to have a stable marriage. And I wondered why could that be? I mean, you know, why? Why? What is it? What? Where is it? What difference does it make if you meet somebody on a park bench or on a dating site? So I did a study, a national study on this. And as it turns out, if you meet somebody, the people who are dating online um, are more likely to have a full-time job, are more likely to have higher education, and are more likely to be interested in a committed relationship. So it's just dramatically changing. We just have to figure
2: it out. Yeah, and I think what's what's so interesting about that, too, um, you know, these sort of subsets of the population, so you think about, you know, um, lesbian and gay people and bi people um, and trans people, I'll talk a little bit about um, here, here in just a bit. But When you think about these sort of alternate, what we would consider like alternate forms of dating that have become commonplace now, you know, they've been doing this uh, using apps and these sort of things for much longer than what heterosexual people have. Um, And so that's sort of commonplace in that culture. But really, when you think about like what would motivate somebody to do that or what would motivate somebody to utilize these apps, of course, You know, a paucity of dating partners is one or, you know, having a diffuse pool of people to choose from. So that makes it that simplifies the process a little bit more. Um, you know, if you're living in a sort of area where there aren't a lot of viable partners, you know, it, it simplifies that. But more than anything, you know, it's like people are very busy. And so what that allows people to do is sort of cut to the chase. Right. Um, and especially for young people, they report, you know, they report being very busy. So these sort of things, these sort of these sort of apps, um, you know, they do a lot. They cut through a lot of. Um, time-consuming kind of mechanisms. But again, you know, we see this, you know, these have been sort of prevalent in the in uh, uh, sort of queer culture for like for a, a
4: while. I, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on this, but your instinct is always that this is a bit dehumanizing, that this must be at least a cousin of the whole phenomenon of, you know, sort of young people who really can't have a conversation in person because all they know how to do is converse and message on their phones. But but i suspect related to what travis has said i I, you know i'm old enough to remember this term singles bars and and you know you had to go out to a public place in order to meet somebody and it had to you had to like to sort of drink Mm -hmm. alcohol and be in noisy environments and and another upside maybe of this online culture whether it's match or tinder or grinder or something like that is you don't have to go and and we don't really have places that are called singles bars anymore Mm -hmm. all right we're about halfway through our program today we're talking
1: about uh, you know, it's Valentine's Day, so we're talking about uh, marriage, romance, and all things related to those uh, topics with uh, Steve Sanders, a professor of law at the Maurer School of Law in Bloomington, Travis Lawson, a counselor who does a lot of couples counseling, and Dr. Helen Fisher, a senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute. If you uh, want to join us after the program, our phone numbers are 812, I'm sorry, after the break, 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at New Edition. We'll be right back.
0: From the Milton Met studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers south-central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIUNews. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org.
1: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from WFIU and WTIU along with Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. And we're talking with three experts today about um, romance, marriage, all things that are related to those things as sort of our tribute to Valentine's Day. If you want to join us on the program, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348 or you can send us a question at news at org. just as somebody did.
5: We got another question about online dating. Wondering about all the anxiety that comes with learning about tech, does this create anxiety with seeking a relationship and end up being a deterrent?
1: Hmm. Maybe wanna tackle that?
5: Dr. Fisher? Maybe you could take that one. Um maybe dr fisher's not with us so then travis i'm going to look to you
2: (laughs) okay well i'll run with it then um you know it's i thinking about that question more globally you know it's um younger people are much more comfortable using technology than older people are and so i could see how that would be it would impose or could potentially impose a barrier um, in terms of using that as a modality and or in terms of uh, how comfortable uh, comfortable someone would feel doing that. Um, I hope that answers the question.
5: I think so. I mean, I, I guess even Bob and I just kind of learning the basics of Tinder, you could see how um, <laughs> yeah,
4: there, there's it a, could a, be. I, I mean, most of these things are not complicated, right? I mean, if, right. You, if you swipe left, it's not going to delete your phone data or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I mean, if, you can use nope. an, if you can use an iPhone or if you know how to browse a website, you can probably know how to use these yeah. things. My, my guess, though, is there might be just as much or more of a disconnect with what's the etiquette on these things. We, mm-hmm. we were talking during the break about how it's become kind of a joke that even on Tinder so often when you match with people, they don't end up talking to you anyway. You, just, you don't end up having a conversation. And... You know, what are the norms and expectations and etiquette about, you know, having a conversation or what you're supposed to reveal to a person before you meet them? I suspect the age disconnect might have more more play there than just like, how do you use this thing?
2: Yeah. And I think that would be challenging if you don't have kind of a schema or a script for how to do something like that. Right. And mm-hmm. um, which, again, you know. Uh, would, would be, uh, or it could be age-dependent, right? So I want to switch gears and just... Can
3: I just say one thing? Oh, yeah, mean, yeah, sure. Courtship uh-huh. is always complicated. It has always been complicated. It will always be complicated. All these things are introducing you to somebody, and then you create that complicated process. I mean, you know, it, uh, and the etiquette is changing, uh, you know, not only on the internet, but uh, on a date, uh, you know, 60% of singles do not want you texting while you're out on a date with somebody. They don't want you bringing your your phone to the bathroom. They don't want you to bring it outside where you're, um, you know, uh, even the way you text. They don't want all capital letters. They don't want something too short. A whole pile of new taboos are evolving along with this new technology.
5: I think there was a Kinsey study that showed that if you text with emojis, then your relationship does better.
3: Right. (laughs) That's right. So, I'm on that. I think I'm on that one. Were you on <laughs> that one? Yeah. I guess it makes we sense. we collected the data, and my, and my wonderful friend, now the director, um, Justin Garcia, and his staff, uh, his, his team, uh, really um, crunches all the data and gets the article under control.
1: So I want to ask about politics because, you know, we're in such a divisive world these days, and I, I just wonder what kind of impact is that having on relationships? Anybody? Um, Well,
3: I've done a whole study on it, Um, but I'm happy to hear everybody else's... Should I go with that? or Yeah, go with that, um,
1: please.
3: Well, yeah. anyway, yeah. It's a, and, um, we've asked. Uh, I do an annual study with Match called Singles in America. And as I mentioned, I, we do not poll the Match members. This is a national representative sample of singles based on the U.S. census. So we've got the right numbers of blacks, whites, Asian, Latino, gay, straight, rural, suburban, urban, every part of the country and, and every age, age 18 to 71 plus. And I've just been looking very carefully over the politics of, of it and there 's two things there 's several things that are happening. Uh, one is that the people in the center are moving left or right, and uh, more women are moving to the left and more men are moving to the right um, and fewer and fewer people uh, singles today are willing to date somebody uh, from the other side of the aisle it 's gone down twenty six percent but seventy eight percent of singles in the t- in t- four years ago, right before Trump was elected. would consider dating somebody on the other side of the aisle. And now in 2019, only 52% will. So that's a a 26% drop in the number of people who are willing to go out with somebody on the other side. What's interesting to me is that 49% of of singles actually want a partner who will discuss both sides. And so they seem to be a relatively mentally flexible uh, group. And but don't forget what they're doing is courting. I mean, there's something more important than somebody's political be- beliefs. It's whether they want to have children, whether they want to marry, whether they're a good kisser, uh, and things that are more you know central to the moment. But anyway, we are seeing some political civility. Um, when I ask the question, you know, do you try to understand the other? if you're on a date with somebody you try to understand their perspective if they're from the other side and forty five percent of both men and women would say yes so um, and even more interesting to me is that one-third of singles today have been in love with someone with very different political views so that's something but what's the really interesting part is of those one-third who have gone out with somebody with very different views seventy three percent would do it again they would do it again. So basically, once you've found love, once you've experienced this, that brain system for romantic love and the feelings of remembered love uh, seem to be stronger than one's political views.
4: Yeah, but then there's the issue about meeting the parents. There, there's a uh, just a, non, a, a poll I found uh, that said in 1960, um, looks like, you know, the question is, people who would be displeased if their child married someone from the other political party. In 1960, it was like, you know, 4 or 5% of both. By 2010, that's the most recent number in this poll, 49% of Republicans and 33% of Democrats said they would be very displeased if their child married someone from the other political party. And chances are that's just gone up since 2010.
1: (laughs) Travis, and I want to ask, and obviously you have all sorts of confidentiality things you can't talk about, but— do you find in your practice that this has become a bigger issue with people who may be having problems in their relationship
2: you know it's been so interesting actually like I was posed this question um, sort of in a preliminary way before coming on and I was trying to think about it and actually I haven't seen that um, be a large problem you know it's not something that's sort of pressing or prevalent you know the problems that were sort of pre-existing um, in this sort of pre-Trump era, or however you want to kind of look at that, are still kind of the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and amplified, of course, in, in certain domains. And but, what yeah. are they? What are the biggest problems? You know, it, it, like when people come, uh, <laughs> and the biggest problems, uh, you know, people report um, communication problems, yeah. right? Communication problems that they feel like they can't communicate or what you know in in literature is called You know, you know sort of like making a bid to your partner that your partner doesn't accept so it's like this idea that we you know um, can't communicate well with one another mm-hmm. report right is, there are other things that kind of underpin
4: that is yeah. that thought to be at all related to again like the use of phones and kind of the the the, the, the 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 way people younger people are more isolated and aren't having the sort of social contact and building the sort of social skills that they used to or you know I don't know the I
2: I don't know the research on that and I really don't. And um so I don't have a definitive answer to you. Uh, Trevor We have a researcher here. How about uh, I know <laughs> let's ask her
3: uh-huh. <laughs> Well, first of all, I agree. I think as Travis, that I, I, it's not my data, but I have also read that um, once you're in a marriage, political differences is not um, a, a large uh, problem, and that it is communication. So, I mean, here in that business, but uh, but I've certainly read the same thing that you know, by the time you marry somebody, you know what their politics is. You've already decided you can cope with that. It is this issue of communication, but there's a lot of new data that um, people that. We we are not losing our ability to communicate. I'm not positive we've ever been that good at communicating i I actually don't think that uh that uh that um, our modern world is is sort of depleting the brain's ability to to have a conversation um, so a very new data, I think it came out last week that uh, people who, who date on the internet and who spend more time on the internet actually have more friends more networks more connections and more communication so I think that's just a modern fear you know anytime there's new technology everybody gets scared that this is going to destroy the brain but uh, bottom line is you know our communication um ability has been around for <laughs> quite a few million years, uh, well, certainly thousands and thousands of years, uh, and um, we're just doing it a little bit differently. But um, I would think, I don't know, Travis, you must know this, That uh, I mean, you must, I mean, I'm asking you, um, I would imagine that communication was the main issue long before the internet came around.
2: I think it's the main issue, and I want to say something really interesting about communication. Again, like kind of under this umbrella or under this realm of looking at, you know, um, you know, heterosexual couples and same-sex couples um, is that, you know, communication is really bound by sexual scripts. Who does what? Who says what? Right? Um, And one thing that we see, and it's very interesting, like when you look at uh, 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 sort of work divisions, who does what, like uh, physically in a relationship, who takes on what task, um, is that uh, in particular – And I'm reminded of this all the time, that communication is really bound by a sexual script, what women are supposed to do and say, what men are supposed to do and say. Because where you see that get uh, really interesting is like when you look at um, uh, same-sex couples, when you look at men, it's like uh, generally speaking – uh, uh, same-sex couples who are men and same-sex cu- couples in general uh, tend to uh, communicate better to one another than heterosexual couples do. And the idea behind that is is they're not so bound by scripts. And you see that also, and it's actually very, very prevalent, when you have a, a division of labor within a family, every bit of research indicates that same-sex sex couples, when there's a division of labor within a family, they actually are um, a little more polished, a little better about doing it. And the idea behind that is is because they can com- communicate a little more freely with one another um, because, again, they're not so bound by these um by these um, kind of gendered roles that people take on so they're better able to sort of permeate boundaries and move back and forth between you know who does what right
5: we got a question on twitter that's for you travis if you go to counseling is your relationship already doomed
2: Um, you know i actually i was talking to one of my best friends who's a psychologist here in town and we were talking about this and i meant to look at the data on this and i don't know the data i will tell you and this is very anecdotal it's like I think – and I think this is true of counseling in general. I don't think most people, when they seek counseling, are doing it because they're doing it in a proactive way where they want to sort of, uh, you know, proactively kind of uh, buffer things. I think, you know, whether it's a couple that comes to counseling, whether it's an individual, whether it's a family, you know, they're sort of doing it because things have – you know, things are kind of in shambles. And so, you know, I, I think the best way to get ahead of any problem is by being as proactive as you can. So I know that's sort of a—I uh, I don't mean to speak in hyperbole, and I know that's sort of a um, sort of roundabout way of answering the question, but I really think a lot of times by the by the time a couple ends up in counseling, at least from my experience—and I would bet, venture to guess if we sort of surveyed a lot of other uh, clinicians too. Um, they would agree that things are, you know, relatively bad, Mm -hmm. right? And so the idea is that you get ahead of things, you know, when things are still, you know, good and learn how to, you know, sort of establish these, like, um, uh, very functional communication patterns, um, establish uh, sort of these ways of existing in your relationship um, early on um, that sort of will predict how how things go
1: our phone numbers again are 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or 877 285 9348 you can also send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org and you can get a hold of us at uh, on twitter at Noon edition what is the you know what is the economy doing in this i know you know at least anecdotally i've always heard that you know, money is one of the things that is a big issue with couples who are having problems. Dr. Fisher, you know, in, in the research that you've done or the research that you've seen, where does uh, sort of, where do economic issues fit in?
3: Yeah. Um, um, I haven't studied. Actually, I have studied quite a bit of this, but it was some time ago when I, uh, with the Singles in America study, but uh, I do, I, I know that I mentioned that one third of, of people in their 20s uh, uh, don't want to get into a relationship, don't want to, what they say, catch feelings until they are financially stable. So um, that's one of the reasons that they're marrying so much later. So uh, I do think that that, but you know, the brain system for romantic love is going to happen no matter what. I was very concerned wondering whether, you know, we had that great um, economic uh, uh, disaster in 2008, and the stock market went down, and people were losing their jobs, and, you know, we thought we were going through a real recession. And so we asked whether uh, singles, you know, were, stop- were stopping dating, and they weren't. They were spending less money on it. They were going to cheaper restaurants. But that, br- that drive to love just, you know, is paramount.
5: Mm -hmm. How do you see love changing as women start to earn more degrees than men and out earn men in some cases?
3: Uh, apparently over a third of people who are married today the woman makes more money than the mm-hmm. husband does and it's really um, you know I did I did a study in which I asked and and the vast majority of men actually want a wife or a partner who has a, not only just a job but a career something that she's interested in you know it's so interesting that you asked that because everybody is talking about oh technology is changing everything technology is just enabling us to do the same old thing what's really changing is women into the job market in cultures around the world that was changing the way the family is built the way we court the way we uh, marry and the expectations in a marriage and what 's interesting to me is that I 'm an anthropologist, of course, so bottom line is we're moving forward to the kinds of people that we were almost a million years ago. I mean, for millions of years, on the grasslands of Africa, women commuted to work to gather their fruits and vegetables. They came home with 60 to 80 percent of the evening meal. The double income family was the rule, and women were regarded as just as economically, sexually and socially powerful as men. And we began to settle down on the farm. Men's roles became much more important. Women became sort of second class citizens. Uh, And we see the rise of a lot of beliefs that are going, leaving, (laughs) disappearing before our eyes. Virginity at marriage, that belief system is gone. Uh, The belief that the woman's place is in the home, that's disappearing. The belief that the man's the head of the family, that's disappearing. And this concept of till death do us part, that's disappearing. We're moving forward to um, the double-income family and the rise of women economically, socially, and sexually, and that's the real story about today.
5: Mm -hmm. I'm curious about religion. I mean, we've talked about politics and economics and and how, I think Steve had the data about um, politics and how people would be disappointed, but what about if, if you're Catholic and you bring home a guy who's Muslim? What kind of data do you have on that, Dr. Fisher?
3: Um, uh, we ask that every year when I do this national study and something like 70% of men uh, when I ask what are you looking for in a partner um, and they do not say that about 70% of men and 60% of women uh, nationally um, don't care very much about the ethnic background uh, or your religious background what they want now is somebody who's compatible somebody who's kind somebody who respects them uh... somebody who's physically attracted to them they're looking for a companion um, not a, you know, I, I would imagine it's much better if you can find somebody from your same religious background, because we do seek people who have the same values, and of course, your daily habits. I mean, if you're very Catholic, you're going to have different daily habits than if you're an atheist. Uh, um, I mean, in terms of how often you go to church, how often you get, get dressed up, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it's playing less and less and less of a role. I mean, when you look back onto the farm, for example, a young woman, she had to marry a guy from the same religious background, the same social set um, uh, who could financially support her and hopefully lived in the farm next door all of that is gone. We're now choosing to please ourselves, and religion does not seem to be a major part of that.
4: Yeah, there's a, mm-hmm. a Pew study from 2016 that indicates, and I, I guess this is this is completely uh, uh, intuitive, not counterintuitive, that uh, people who scored more highly on, on being religious, uh, a high-index score of religious observance and so forth, were more likely to be married to someone that they shared a religion with. And if you were... Um, uh, 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 married to someone who did not share your religious tradition, it was more likely that you were someone who just religion was not an important part of your life. Based on other measures, that uh, that seems to make sense. Yeah,
5: mm-hmm. um, we got another question from Twitter. I think this is probably for you, Travis, too. Asking, are prenups becoming more common with economic equality?
1: There was a story on Marketplace about that just last night. Really?
5: Yeah. What did it say?
1: Well, it was just a young—it was just a young couple that was having a prenup, and they were, you know, they were just a normal young couple, and they were talking a month before they were going to even, I think, get officially engaged about whether they would have a prenup or not. And mm-hmm. it was just kind of an interesting story.
2: And actually, it, you know, I'll let the other two take this yeah. because okay. I feel like they could be, do a little bit better job than I could answering this question. Hey, Dr. Fisher.
3: I know that uh, when I asked uh, 5,000 Americans of every age and background whether they wanted to have a prenap, 36 percent said yes. And I was rather surprised at how low that was. Other people think it's high. I think it's a bit low, uh, only because uh, we got a lot of property these days. Uh, and... Uh, People have a lot of arguments over property, and it strikes me that that would... I don't know. I wonder what Steve says in terms of the law, but, uh, uh, you know, you go back to hunting and gathering groups, and they didn't have to fight over property. I mean, he was she wasn't going to take his bow and arrow, and he wasn't going to take her pottery bowl and her digging stick. And the, everybody knew who belonged to the, where the child belonged because it was part of a, a particular clan, and it was going to stay part of that clan. So they didn't have this problem of so much property, but today we do, and I'm sort of amazed that, and this is, I guess, the triumph of love. You believe this will last forever, and so you're not thinking about it sort of rationally.
4: Steve? I, I, I certainly teach the law of prenups, and in, in family law, I, I, I don't have any particular data, uh, that that is unique to me. I mean, I do anecdotally, you know, hear from students. I sometimes have students who are married or who are engaged. I don't know if economic equality so much has to do with it. I think it just, um, you know, it, it it makes sense that young people starting out who don't have a lot of assets and who may have, you know, relatively even incomes and earning potentials are probably less likely to imagine that they need a prenup as a practical matter. Prenups are more common among second people getting into second marriages, people who are older, who are established, who have assets that they want to protect in some ways. So I, I think the, the the variable is more, you know, do you, do you have reason to anticipate that as your situation changes in life, it might be a good idea to have a prenup? There was a New York Times article from 2018 that said, um, millenni- uh, r- lawyers who do these kinds of things report that more millennial generation clients seek prenups or are asking about prenups but at least in part it was theorized that that has to do with the fact that they're older when they get married and so probably again the older you are the more established you are the more you have an income or there might be income disparities between you and the person you meet that's probably what's more likely to drive your sense of whether it's something you need or not.
1: Steve, if you could sort of continue on that, that mode, is there anything you know, that we haven't touched on about marriage equality litigation that's just a hot-button issue right now? I mean, what's the most sort of the most common issue that comes up?
4: if you're talking about same sex marriage yeah. mean, mm-hmm. uh, the probably the most the most common issues are not about the marriage relationship itself the two people it it has to do with um, there's a whole basket of issues that scholars are writing about uh, about the consequences related to children a, a children paternity mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Relate, You know, relationships with your child and so forth. So just within the past couple of weeks, the uh, Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, the federal court that applies here in Indiana, ruled in a case that had been sitting around for a long time that um, the state of Indiana had to recognize if, if there are two women who are married who get together and have, who, who have a baby, but one of them is artificially inseminated with a sperm donor. Um, The way that is treated when it was an opposite-sex couple, the the father's name was just kind of presumptively put on the birth certificate. I'm sorry, the husband's name was presumptively put on the birth certificate as the father, even though he was not the biological father. It was a sperm donor. But the state of Indiana was refusing to do that for married women, female couples. And the Court of Appeals in Chicago that applies to us said, no, that is part of what marriage equality means. You have to treat... A childbearing and birth certificates are are part of the basket of rights and privileges that you have when you are married. Um, You know, uh, same-sex couples are more likely to uh, need to use, for for example, gestational surrogates if they want to have a child. That's particularly gay male couples. Um, The law of surrogacy uh, varies widely from state to state. In Indiana, surrogacy agreements are not even recognized legally. so there are other questions having to do with the fact that often when same-sex couples have children, one parent is not actually the biological parent, but plays a parenting role, or the child was born into the family at the time of the marriage. And so there are issues like that that courts are, uh, are still sorting out.
1: All right. Um, so we've got just a couple minutes to go. And I guess I wanted to ask uh, Travis and Dr. Fisher, uh, you know, it's Valentine's Day, so do you have any uh, any advice we had one one question that asked for advice before about cohabitation? Do you have any, you know, last thoughts that we haven't gotten to about this whole idea of marriage, romance, relationships on this Valentine's Day here in Bloomington?
5: advice for a long happy relationship
2: i know so you know it's like i this is all i was thinking about you know it's like the way in which if you look at you know sort of marriage over a lifetime it follows sort of a u-shaped curve right it's like so marital equality sort of starts high and it goes down and it sort of like uh, sort of bottoms out around the time like you know late adolescence that people have kids and it goes back up right and so the idea is that you know it's the way in which people love each other shifts over time, right? It's like it goes from being this sort of, like, passionate thing to being more like of a sort of companionship, right? And so it changes. And what's really related to that is this idea of, like, intimacy. And and intimacy is related to um, frequency of sex and those things um really tie into like how satisfied people are. So I think at the end of the day what's really important is that you're actually friends with a person mm-hmm. that you're married w- that you're married to or that you're in a relationship with. It's you know having a good friendship You know, a really solid foundation. Um, And being really good friends with the person that you're with, like, matters a lot. Mm -hmm. Right? Dr. Fisher, we have less than a minute to go,
1: but why don't you uh, take us back, take us home here? Uh,
3: All right. Well, we, we, I and my colleagues have put over 100 people in this brain scanner, and uh, we put in 15 people who had been married, happily married for over 20 years. And we looked at what's going on in the brain in a long term happy marriage. And these are the three brain regions that become active a brain region linked with empathy a brain region linked with controlling your own stress and your own emotions, and a brain region linked with positive illusions, the ability to overlook what you don't like about somebody and focus on what you do. So psychologists will say all kinds of great things about sustaining a happy marriage. Don't show contempt. Don't threaten divorce. Listen actively. But this is what the brain says. Express empathy, control your own stress and your own emotions, and overlook the negative.
1: Thank you very much. That was Dr. Helen Fisher, a senior research fellow from the Kinsey Institute. I've also been talking with Travis Lawson, a counselor who does couples counseling, Steve Sanders, a professor of law at the Maurer School of Law here in Bloomington, and an affiliated faculty member with the Department of Gender Studies at the Kinsey Institute. I want to thank our, our guests for joining us and also for co host Sarah Whitmire, producer Benta Boutier, and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening.
0: Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation,